You're going to love this. Just love it. Yeah. Lots to love today. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you from Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, KYAQ, and coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on iTunes. Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not.com, Radio Free Brooklyn.com, and of course, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around swell fellow, says me. If not you, maybe you do too. Welcome to the broadcast. Uh, good to have you here. A big show today. A lot going on. I can already tell we're not going to get to everything. I can already hate to disappoint you right off the bat, but all of the Donald Trump stuff I had hoped to get to, I don't think we're going to get it, get to any of it. And I know that's Aww. all. I know. I know that's all that people care about right now. Donald Trump. Uh, and, and understandably, because you know what? I'll tell you what about Donald Trump. Uh, he is not uh, Michelle Bachman from 2012. He is not Herman Cain from 2012. I think that this guy is going to be around for a while. You know, uh, Herman Cain, uh, Newt Gingrich, Michelle Bachman, they all skyrocketed to the front of the pack back in 2012. Uh, uh, actually, yeah, 2012. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, 2012. In my brain. Um and they were all crazy, like Donald Trump, but they had to rely on other people. They had to rely on big funders to be able to stay in the race. And once the establishment wanted them out and say, hey, cut these people off. They're crazy. They're making us look like idiots. The big funders were able to, you know, simply cut them off. Not so with Donald Trump. He has his own money. So you've got a dangerous guy who is both uh, crazy and rich. And by the way, he's not all that crazy. In fact, he was uh, you know, he reflects everything that I remember 10 years ago this summer. As a matter of fact, going down to Crawford, Texas, where we were covering Cindy Sheehan's uprising down there and talking to a lot of these great people, these these crazy right wingers. Donald Trump sounds exactly like them. Which is why I said when he first came out that the Republican Party was going to have to deal with this guy. He's not just some uh, you know crazy freak. He is speaking to the very soul of the Republican Party. And uh, that's why he's going to be around for a while. But remember, I started this uh, program just minutes ago saying I wasn't going to talk about Donald Trump. Funny how that works. How am I doing? Um, <laughs> anyway, well, we'll see. Who knows? Maybe we'll talk about uh, Donald Trump some more. Because I know that's what you people want to talk about. You pretend it's not, but that is what you want to talk about. Um 
Speaking of things that you uh, don't want to talk about, I don't know. The uh, United States now says, as we go to air, this is breaking from AP, that hackers stole uh, social security numbers from 21.5 million people in that recent data breach. And again, I'm only going to talk about it long enough to, to remind you that that happened. So you can keep that in mind next time they tell you that voting with electronic systems and Internet voting is a good idea. The U.S. couldn't even protect Social Security numbers of 21 and a half million people in the most important data systems that it has. But, you know, <clears throat> don't worry when your uh, local election clerk tells you uh, they've got military-grade encryption on their Internet voting systems. You have nothing to worry about. Coming up in this program today, Florida Supreme Court. This is big. Uh, a, 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 a big decision from the Florida Supremes concerning uh, redistricting eight gerrymandered uh, districts. Eight districts, eight congressional districts that were set up to favor Republicans in violation, as it turns out, of the uh, the wishes of the people of Florida and the Florida State Constitution. We'll talk about that that's some very good news and some more very good news. A big ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals this week in uh, in D.C. concerning campaign financing. An 11 to nothing decision that you will like, that I like. We'll talk to Hamlin University's David Schultz about that decision and four things that he says can be done right now to counter Citizens United and... Uh, and other rulings uh, that have just made a mockery of our electoral system uh, for things that he says can be done immediately to curb the influence of big and dark money on our political system. Stuff that stuff that could happen right now. <clears throat> if only the president and some executive agencies stand up and do the right thing and start calling for it. Uh, these things don't require waiting for a constitutional amendment or waiting for Congress to act. So we will talk with David Schultz about that in a little bit. Also, the Green News Report is back. Yes, that's right. While we were out over the uh, July 4th holiday weekend, a lot of stuff happened, including Democrat Jim Webb. Who? Jim Webb getting into the uh, into the Democratic race for the 2016 nomination. Good luck with that, Mr. Webb. <clears throat> I should say Senator Webb. We will tell you, as we have with all of the other candidates, what his position is on climate change. I'll give you a hint. It's terrible. <laughs> it's just really bad, uh, not just for a Democrat, really for anyone. Uh, we'll also talk about new heat records being absolutely crushed right now around the world. And also the solar impulse too. the uh, the uh, solar plane, which had left for a harrowing five day, five night journey. And I'm underscoring five-night journey because this is a solar plane. It has no fuel. It is not a hybrid. It is not a Prius airplane. It has only solar panels uh, to make this uh, harrowing five-day journey over the Pacific. We will let you know. They had, it had left just before we took the holiday break. We'll let you know how that came out. Hint, 
good news for uh, humanity, bad news for Joe the shark, who was following this uh, this this solar impulse as it was flying from Japan, was it, Doug? Yes, to, yeah, they, to, they were delayed in Japan due to weather. They flew all the way to Hawaii. Japan to Hawaii. Five Joe days. the shark right. on Twitter following them the entire we way. We will have that and uh, much more on the Green News Report straight ahead. But first, uh, today, another embarrassment in the U.S. House for Republicans, for John Boehner, who had to pull this bill. Earlier this week, uh, we had a story I had been trying to get to and I couldn't get to that uh, the U.S. House had voted to ban the sale of the Confederate flag in in U.S. Park Service stores. Well, that was good news. Very little debate. It was banned in the U.S. voted uh, an amendment to, to, to ban it in the U.S. House. Um, and, of course, the first thing I thought of was they sell the Confederate flag in, in U.S. Park Service uh, stores? Who knew? Well, this would put a, a ban on that, make it official. It looked like there was going to be no problems with it. And then all of a sudden, problems happened today. And uh, several Republicans were uh, were trying to get that provision taken out of the uh, funding, the annual funding for the Interior Department um, and what John Boehner was forced to do was to pull the entire funding for the Interior Department, just pull the bill at this point, because apparently he did not want a debate over the Confederate flag in the U.S. House right now. And I can hardly blame him. Meanwhile, in South Carolina, some very good news. That flag, that Confederate flag that's been hanging outside of the Capitol, very near to where uh, nine parishioners were shot and killed by a guy who uh, idolized, idolized that Confederate battle flag. Um, it looks like that is going to come down, but it took, some, uh, it took some effort. It took some 13 hours of debate. Uh, going into the uh, into the morning, very early on Thursday morning, but more than 50 years after South Carolina raised that Confederate flag at its state house as a protest for the civil rights movement, that uh, rebel banner will be removed on Friday. It has now uh, passed both the Senate and the House, but not after a lengthy debate and a debate that, frankly, um, I think South Carolinians can be quite proud of. You may have heard this clip. I don't know, but I think it's worth playing again. This is uh, state uh, rep Republican state rep Jenny Horn speaking during this floor debate about the Confederate flag late on Wednesday. I, I believe uh, again, she is a Republican and these are just a few minutes of her very moving, very impassioned thoughts that should be noted for history. It's rare enough that uh, someone does the right thing. Uh, and uh, so I want to make sure that folks take notice of it. This is Jenny Horn on Wednesday, Republican in the uh, South Carolina House. I attended the funeral of Senator Clemente Pinckney. And the people of Charleston deserve immediate and swift removal of that flag from this grounds. This flag offends my friend Mia McLeod, my friend John King, my friend Reverend Neal. I cannot believe that we do not have the heart in this body to do something 
meaningful, such as take a symbol of hate off these grounds on Friday. And if any of you vote to amend, you are ensuring that this flag will fly beyond Friday. And for the widow of Senator Pinckney and his two young daughters, that would be adding insult to injury. And I will not be a part of it. I'm sorry. I have heard enough about heritage. I have a heritage. I am a lifelong South Carolinian. I am a descendant of Jefferson Davis. Okay? But that does not matter. It's not about Jenny Horn. It's about the people of South Carolina who have demanded that this symbol of hate come off of the State House grounds. We need to follow the example of the Senate, remove this flag, and do it today. Because this issue is not getting any better with age. Thank you. Representative Jenny Horn, Republican of South Carolina, uh, with some remarkable comments. In fact, uh, she and her uh, her colleagues were successful. And that flag, that Confederate flag, which is a symbol of of hate, of slavery, of segregation, of uh, rebellion, will now be taken down. It will be pulled down from the Capitol's front lawn and the flagpole. It flies on during a uh, ceremony at 10 a.m. on Friday. According to a spokeswoman for uh, Republican Governor Nikki Haley, Haley signed uh, the bill, which passed that state house early on Thursday after 13 hours of debate. Uh, that uh, she signed it in the state house lobby. The measure requires that the flag come down within 24 hours of her signature. Good for her, and good for the rest of the uh, both Democrats and Republicans who stepped up to do the right thing in South Carolina. It's the right thing, but it is the easy thing. Now about that whole race and terror and gun issue. Can we get to that stuff soon? Taking a quick break, and we will come back with some good news on campaign finance and uh, gerrymandering in the state of Florida. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today.
Not quite so funny for the rest of us, is it? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Yes, we are talking about campaigns, campaign finance again today. But for a change, we might have a little bit of not horrible news. Um, let me start in Florida, some breaking news out of Florida. And I know to say that we have some not horrible breaking election news out of Florida. It's uh, too good to believe, but it's true. We do. Uh, the Florida State Supreme Court today struck down much of the state's congressional map. On Thursday, they ruled five to two that eight districts, eight congressional districts, were gerrymandered to favor Republican candidates. Now, in most states around the country, partisan gerrymandering is sadly perfectly legal, and it's done by largely in most states by whoever controls uh, the state house. And uh, after the uh, 2010 wave elections, we had Republicans take over a lot of state houses around the country, and they gerrymandered states like crazy to the point where we've had elections over the past few years where uh, more Democrats have received votes, and yet Republicans still hang on to their majority in the U.S. House. So it's perfectly legal, uh, if distasteful, it seems to me, and to the electorate, uh, uh, to gerrymander the way that we have seen over the past several years. But uh, in Florida, voters recently approved a constitutional amendment that banned drawing districts that blatantly favor parties or incumbents. This was a uh, constitutional amendment that passed a, a referendum back in 2010. But even after that amendment was adopted, it was unclear whether state courts would enforce the, uh, the language very strictly or whether they defer to the legislature on this. In this case, once again, the Republican-dominated legislature down there in the Sunshine State. Now, this ruling today by the Florida Supreme Court shows that the courts will strike down maps that they view are uh, that they view as drawn uh, with only partisan intent. The voters sought fair districts, the Florida justices write, and they ordered that the legislature draw a new map that would then have to gain court approval. And they laid out various guidelines for how the process could be done more transparently. So pretty big news out of Florida today. Uh, eight districts specifically and some of the districts that then uh, surround them could be affected here. They were drawn to favor Republican candidates. That could change. That's one piece of good news. In other good news on Tuesday... The U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. ruled 11 to nothing that a ban on federal campaign contributions by individuals who contract with the government is constitutional. This is uh, written by David Schultz, professor from Hamlin University up in uh, Minnesota, writing over at TPM Cafe. He says, after a wave of controversial decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court that have unleashed a flood of big money into politics, this appeals court decision sends a clear message. Sometimes more money in politics can be a very bad thing. He goes on to write that Americans agree. According to a poll from The New York Times, some 85 percent of the American people believe that the way political campaigns are funded needs either fundamental changes 
That's 39% of the public. Or a complete rebuild. That's according to 46% of the public. Oh, you don't say. And by the way, this is, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike feel that uh, the system is just a disaster right now. David Schultz goes on to write that money has become central to American politics. Spending in the 2016 presidential election alone could top $4 billion. That's billion with a B, with the winning candidate having to raise $1.5 billion. However, Schultz argues uh, that the appeals court decision reminds us that something can be done now to change this fine mess. Here to talk about what can be changed in this fine mess is David Schultz, professor of political science and law at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. He is also author of Election Law and Democratic Theory, as well as the forthcoming book, Presidential Swing States, Why 10 Only Matter. He blogs about politics at schultzstake.blogspot.com. And you can read his article, uh, A Federal Court Just Threatened Citizens United over at TPM Cafe. Professor David Schultz, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, great to talk to you about this, and, and, and thanks for the good and encouraging news about the U.S. Court of Appeals decision. I want to talk about that in a moment, and uh, also thank you for pointing out what can be done about this fine mess. And you talk about four different things that can be done now that don't require waiting for a constitutional amendment, that don't even require necessarily waiting on Congress. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's, let's talk first about this U.S. Court of Appeals a uh, decision in Washington, D.C., 11 to nothing. What was this case about, and uh, what was the message that the court was sending here? Well the, well, the simple thing that it was about, I think you captured it really well, I think I caught it in my first paragraph here, is, is that increasingly we are seeing concerns about people basically, I'm going to call it pay-to-play. Mm-hmm. You know, they give political contributions you know, you know, to government officials and hope in return that they're going to get government contracts from it. Yep. You know, a very common practice across the United States. I've, I've seen, we see this all the time. And, and what some cities and governments are trying to do is to say, well, no, we think that if you're going to bid on, on contracts, um, it would be a conflict of interest for you to also then be making political contributions to try to influence the people who are going to, um, to lift those contracts out. And that's essentially what the court said in the situation here, is that, there is that, that if you're going to bid on a, on a federal contract, um, the law could say, well, you have a choice. You can make a political contribution or you can bid on a federal contract, but you can't do both because we're concerned about what corruption or the appearance of corruption or in some way, shape, or form that, it's, again, it's a conflict of interest for you to be able to um, um, use your resources to tr- in a way that enhances your ability um, to get a contract from the government. And, uh, David Schultz, since you mentioned pay-to-play, I think uh, I'll, I'll use that opportunity for a, a bit of a plug here. Uh, I'm in a documentary film called Pay-to-Play. Uh, by a filmmaker, John Wellington Ennis, uh, a, an excellent film. I'm I, even though I'm in it, it's it's a great film. Paytoplay.tv. You can get more information about it, and it talks about exactly, exactly this thing. Now, uh, the Court of Appeals decision. What was this? Ba- what was it? This, this was in response to. Was this a uh, an executive order by by the president? Was this a law? What exactly were they uh, deciding in response to here? Well, 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 they're dealing with, with again, um, 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 some executive orders and, mm-hmm. and well, 
it's mostly executive orders here that place some limits uh, upon abilities to be able to, to give contributions. But, but I want to sort of really abstract it from that case yeah. and, and point out that, that we have in a lot of industries already um, some bans on what we'd call targeted contributions. For example, for people who deal in the municipal bond markets, mm-hmm. for example, they have long been prevented from making political contributions to local governments because of the conflict of interest there. Um, I think a couple of states, for example, like um, have, have bans on, on the casino or the gambling industry from mm-hmm. making political contributions to state officials. And so there are many situations where some states have said that they don't want particular industries or lobbyists, for example, um, being able to make contributions. Again, all for that same purpose here. And, and we really haven't had good rulings in terms of um, this high a level of a court uh, making a, a, a definitive statement regarding their constitutionality. And that's what I think is most significant here. And does this re- re- uh, apply to simply to individuals, or is it corporations as well? I'm thinking, for example, uh, you know, the, the Koch brothers, Koch Industries. Uh, I would presume they would have all kinds of uh, contracts around the country, federal contracts. Would, would they be allowed anymore to make campaign contributions, or could this apply to, uh, to someone like you know the Koch brothers and Koch's, Koch industry? Yeah, by the logic of this decision, there's no reason why it can't apply to both individuals or corporations, to literally anybody who's, make, who's making bids at this point. Wow. And that's why, it's, that's why it's a significant challenge to Citizens United, because if Citizens United, the U.S. Supreme Court decision back in 2010, mm-hmm. was all about saying that, that it's a violation of the First Amendment to prevent corporations from being able to expend resources from their own treasuries to influence federal elections. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of taking it in a different direction of saying that, okay, we've opened it up, the Supreme Court's opened up sort of a hatch or a door, whatever metaphor we want, in one place. But what we're now going to say is, fine, again, if you're going to make those contributions, you now can't use those in a way, to tr- again, to try to sort of you know, leverage your corporate resources to really enrich yourself, you know, because it, it's kind of like feather bedding or it's kind of like i don't know entrenching your own position so that's why this kind of closes the door because again it'll say to the coke brothers or the coke industry go ahead spend all the money you want but if you now think that you're going to be able to do that in a way and and reap the benefits of of, of federal contracts um or or any kind of contracts um you're not going to get that and and this is a a remarkable decision 11 to nothing what are the odds with an uh, 11 to 0 ruling that uh, the case will then go up to the Supreme Court and that the, the, the Supremes might overturn it on the basis of, uh, uh, well, Citizens United or Buckley uh, Vallejo or so forth. Is this a done deal or, or do we still have to worry about the Supreme Court? Not a done deal necessarily. Normally you would say an 11-0 opinion is pretty definitive, especially from you know, the Court of Appeals in Washington, which, is a, which most people would recognize is probably the second highest court in the country. Even though all courts of appeals are the same, mm-hmm. most people say D.C. is sort of number two. So normally 11-0, you would say this is probably not something that's going up to the Supremes. But it's important to remember that the Roberts Court um, is incredibly hostile to campaign finance reform. Yes. With, the ex- with the exception of one case earlier this year, which upheld some limits on, on Florida judges uh, or, um, soliciting money for campaigns, for the most part, um, they have 
been totally hostile to campaign finance reform and have really chipped away dramatically at Buckley versus Vallejo, sort of you know the corner, but the main sort of you know precedent in this area, and are are on the process or in the process. I think, of just about dismantling all the regulations in terms of money and politics. And so this, it's, it's a possibility that this court, which seems to be very activist, um, will take this case. Uh, you, uh, in your article over at the TPM Cafe, David Schultz, you write about, and you do a, a, actually a fantastic job in about three paragraphs that I could never do, so let's test you and see if you can do this on radio. You, uh, you cover very quickly Buckley, uh, and well, basically the the major three cases, decisions by the Supreme Court uh, since 1974 that have gotten us up to this place. And then you talk about things that we can actually do in response to it. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with these three major decisions, are you able to uh, to summarize those three cases? I guess Buckley, uh, Citizens yep. United, and McCutcheon Force very quickly to yep. to set up sure, what okay. we can do. Right. Sure. Okay. Buckley versus Vallejo is a 76 case. Congress, in its in its finest hour, and I mean that after Watergate, uh-huh. um, after the abuses of Watergate, passed a whole series of, of reforms on campaign finance, contribution limits, expenditure limits, um, created a public financing system for presidential elections. And what Buckley does is two things: one, it dramatically wipes out many of those reforms that Congress passed. But what it also says, which is really significant, it says that money enablizes speech. It never said money is speech, never mm-hmm. got that far, but it said the use of money for political purposes is related to First Amendment free speech concerns. And that, and that has sort of set us on a road in terms of, of, of where the law has been. Um, and for, for many years, the court said that you can limit contributions because they lend, lead to the appearance of corruption lead to a corruption or appearance of corruption, but you can't limit expenditures. So that's Buckley. Second case that I think is significant is is the Citizens United case. Mm-hmm. Citizens United case, as I mentioned earlier, um, basically rules that federal laws that had placed limits on the ability of, of corporations to be able to expend money for political purposes, to influence federal elections, dramatically struck down um, a large chunk of those laws Corporations still can't directly give money to candidates, but they can spend an unlimited amount of money to influence federal elections and at the same level state elections. That's the second opinion. And then the third one was called McCutcheonson versus Federal Election Commission. And again, part of those Watergate reforms was a limit on the total aggregate amount of money that an individual could give in any given year. Mm-hmm. And what the Supreme Court said is that it was a violation of the First Amendment to cap total expenditures, or rather total contributions by individuals, um, to $123,000 per year. I like to phrase it differently. Did you realize that <laughs> your First Amendment right was being violated because you couldn't expend or contribute more than $123,000 a year? I know, more than $123,000, which is amazing. I mean, essentially... Uh, you know, what it says is that an individual where, where you might have only been able to give to, oh, I don't know, five or ten different candidates. Now you can give to as many as you want and you can go over that uh, hundred and twenty three thousand dollar a year cap uh, that it has been uh, so crippling uh, to our uh, uh, free speech, apparently, in this country. So those exactly. are the, those are the three decisions. OK, well, uh the three major decisions, anyway, uh, and right. you write, 
And, and I should say, you know, we have talked on this program about constitutional amendments, about, uh, you know, we've spoken with uh, members of Congress who are trying to pass legislation. Good luck with that, with this uh, uh, particular Congress. Um, so it's an uphill fight. A constitutional amendment, uh, you know, would take years that might say something like, uh, the rights in this uh, Constitution apply only to natural human beings as opposed to corporate persons. Um, it, it's a tough fight. But you say in this piece that there are four points, four things uh, that can be done now immediately that don't require an amendment, don't require the, con- the uh, Congress to act, uh, and that may make a difference immediately if they were taken. I'd love to go through these uh, these four points. I've got questions on each of them, frankly. But sure. um, the, the president, you say, could issue an executive order to require federal contractors to disclose all political contributions. Uh, th- they don't have to do that now? They don't have to do that now because under, under Citizens United, mm-hmm. there are um, some limits in terms of, um, well, first off, Citizens United freed them up to make expenditures, mm-hmm. and because we haven't changed our, our laws regarding um, um, disclosure, corporations can either directly expend the money or they can give it through PACs or super PACs or other kind of groups and pretty much hide from having to have public accountability on it. And so what you could do here, the president could just use, and I call it it's a procurement rule, he could just basically say as a rule, as part of the process of contractors bidding on federal contracts, we can require disclosure. We can, and I think the, and, and the Court of Appeals reinforced this here, the president could, could do um, um, the, the, the outright could do a firm outright ban across mm-hmm. the board. Um, I actually had recommended um, at one point saying that okay, maybe we don't do an outright ban, but we could also say okay, if a corporation or um, expends more than X amount of dollars on um, any pretty given year, it would be barred for the next two years from bidding on a federal contract. So, so those are possibilities that the president can use his authority in terms of what I call the procurement authority to create rules. And, and so he could do that with the stroke of a pen. He could do that tomorrow, it sounds like to me. But how, how would that, uh, uh, such a rule, how would that mesh with the uh, Court of Appeals decision? I mean, they, uh, hasn't the Court of Appeals already decided that uh, you can't make these contributions if you are a federal contractor? Court of Appeals decision was more was more limited. Um, the president could make this much more expansive in mm-hmm. terms of again for you know for for all agencies, all parts of the federal government. You know again the, the, the Court of Appeals was, was not a broad one that applied to bidding on everything for the federal government. Mm-hmm. So so here we we could have the president you know really across the board affect you know all, again all federal agencies, all types of contractors, and so this is. And again, the Court of Appeals decision provides the precedent or support for the president to be able to issue this type of broader, broader executive order. And in fact, it's not it wouldn't even be a ban, as you describe it. It's just saying, hey, disclose if you're a federal contractor, if you give money to uh, to campaigns, just tell us who you give it to and and, and make that uh, transparent. All right. Uh, let's go to issue number two here or suggestion number two, the Security and Exchange Commission. What could the SEC do uh, to make things better here? And then uh, we can talk about what are the possibilities of them actually doing it. Sure. 
They could do two things. First, they could also issue a rule requiring all publicly traded companies, again, to also disclose all of their expenditures of the money for political purposes. So this is kind of reinforcing so what, what mm-hmm. the contractors, because some of these agencies may not be, be contractors, um, but also it could require shareholder approval um, um, for the use of money for political purposes. And this creates parity because we know right now, for example, that in unions um, there has to be um, shareholder, or not shareholder, there has to be a cent by, by union members mm-hmm. um, to use their money for political purposes. And union members can say, well, geez, I don't want... I don't want my dues to be used for that purpose. So here we're saying that shareholders and corporations should have a right to be able to vote on and say, yeah, I do want the corporation to be able to spend money for political purposes or not. So it's really both disclosure and permission. And uh, one, you know, one of the things, if, if I understand uh, Citizens United correctly, was uh, the court was saying, well, you know, uh, corporations can go ahead and spend money on this because if it's uh, you know not popular, the the market will react. Shareholders will be mad. They'll pull out their money and so forth. But if the corporations aren't forced to disclose what they are spending and who they are spending it on, how can the market react? How can these uh, the, these shareholders react? Uh, if I'm understanding it correctly, and uh, an SEC uh, rule would would change that. Correct, because I think right now, as you pointed out, shareholders don't know. But also, um, I think there's kind of this myth out here too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a whole different discussion that somehow you know markets um, are thoroughly efficient in terms of absorbing all types of knowledge, and that the prices reflect you know information that's out there. You know, and we know, as a matter of fact, that it's not the case. Mm-hmm. We know that it's also difficult for many shareholders to try to get propositions before, um, before the voters, before other shareholders. For example, for many years there's been efforts to try to, uh, for shareholders to place limits on executive compensation or on environmental issues or fair labor standards. And, and boards of directors do an incredibly good job oftentimes squashing the ability of shareholders. And so in some sense, what I'm also, all I'm talking about here is let's improve a little bit of shareholder democracy. Sure. A little bit of democracy within a corporate structure um, wouldn't be a bad idea. What, what are the chances of the SEC doing this? And is this something that uh, can the president order the SEC to do this? Or is this a SEC an independent body that uh, basically the president can ask them, can hope they do so, but that it's uh, ultimately up to the SEC to make such a decision? He ultimately can't order them, but he can... He can strongly suggest to them mm-hmm. um, that he would like them to begin rulemaking in this process. And so, so there is no reason why they can't ultimately do that. Um, the president can't do that. And there may be alternative ways. I don't talk about it in here. There may be other possibilities through the, pre- through the Treasury Department that there may be alternative ways that he could do a direct order. But here I would say, given the fact that he's appointed so many people to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Mm-hmm. You know, him making a request to the SEC um, to do rulemaking to do this um, would not be inappropriate. And in fact, my suspicion is um, they would react um, if you were to make that request. Well, and we saw something similar to this with the FCC, with the Federal Communications Commission, when uh, uh, the president came out and said, look, we need to have a, a net neutrality rule. And the FCC actually acted pretty quickly. Uh, Which takes us to uh, your point number three, actually concerns the Federal Communications Commission. What could the FCC do uh, 
uh, also to improve the situation, again, without waiting uh, for a constitutional amendment, without waiting for Congress to act? We forget that the public air are the airwaves on which radio and television broadcasts um, are owned by the public, and that stations hold their licenses to broadcast in the public interest. And the reason why I mention that is because there is no reason why one couldn't say that as a condition of holding a license, mm -hmm. of broadcasting in the public interest, no reason why you couldn't require broadcasters to provide a certain amount of free airtime to candidates. Now, there's clearly complex issues regarding how we would figure out who's entitled to it and so forth. But we know, for example, at the presidential level, that about 60 to 70 percent of all the money that will be spent um, you know, in presidential elections will be spent on media advertising, mm -hmm. predominantly on television. And what if now we were to say that we're going to require, you know, you, know, you, know, you know, the big guys, CBS, NBC, you know, Fox, et cetera, et cetera, to say you're going to have to actually provide some free airtime um, so that candidates can get their messages out. And that's important. I mean, I've done a couple of books on the media and politics, and I pointed out, for example, you know, 40 years ago, put on the national news, the average amount of airtime that a candidate got to, you know, on, the, on the national news um, to describe his or her position was about a minute. Now it's down to about 10 seconds. I don't know about you, but I can't explain how we're going to bring about world peace in 10 seconds. Yeah, and I can't explain budget problems in it. And so, so requiring that free airtime would be perfectly constitutional. Um, and that's something that, again, uh, as you pointed out, if FCC can move on net neutrality, there's no reason why it can't move on this. And re I really appreciate you underscoring uh, that point in particular, David Schultz, because I've talked about that for years, uh, the publicly owned airwaves and, you know, people completely, you're right, they forget or they don't understand that the public owns the airwaves when it comes to radio and tele broadcast radio and television. It's not owned by these huge uh, conglomerates, these, uh, you know, essentially six media companies that now own, think they own all of our airwaves. And the other important point is, you know, w that, that I've, I've been trying to underscore for quite a while is the reason you don't see, mo you know, many in the mainstream media Reporting on all of this is because it is, in fact, the mainstream media who are, who come out as the big winners from Citizens yep. United. All of this money we talk about being spent in these elections, the bulk of it are, is going to the, the media outlets. And so while they're shrinking the time, you mentioned, uh, uh, David, uh, you know, down from one minute to 10 seconds, uh, you know, that is covered on the news, they're expanding the time uh, for television commercials that can be purchased. They're actually adding, uh, you know, news shows so they can uh, put in more, more commercials in between uh, since Citizens United. Right, and it's not a coincidence. I think, I think they're both related. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, in some sense, it's a conflict of interest there also because we sort of say that, that the media, well, we not no, sort of say, we do say this, the media has First Amendment protection, freedom of the press, a free media disseminating information is critical to a functioning of a democracy. However, what's happening here is that if these media conglomerates, and they're basically big corporations, you know, for-profit corporations, they do not have a financial interest in reporting on the news. Instead, they have a financial interest in not reporting on the news, especially in campaigns, mm -hmm. and then forcing candidates on the airways to pay enormous amounts of money to be able to mm -hmm. then get their message out. And so, so this is a rebalancing. Again, it goes back to the 
origins of the 1934 Telecommunications Act. Again, the idea of saying that we own the airways. Those corporations make money at the public expense, and they have a requirement to honor our First Amendment right to be able to receive information that we need to be functioning and educated citizens. Thank you for underscoring that. All right, the last point here, and it's one that we've talked about a lot on this show, uh, but I want to get it in in the minute or two we have left. Uh, the the IRS, uh, well, what, what can the IRS do immediately? And I don't think they will, but what could they do if they gave a damn about this, uh, about this problem? Because I think, in fact, this could be uh, the biggest single uh, thing that could be done to fix this problem. Yeah, right now what's happening is that increasingly a lot of groups are using what I call sham nonprofits mm-hmm. to basically hide political contributions. I mean, legit. I mean, legitimately, legitimate nonprofits, you know, can take money in. Um, if I want to give uh, my entire my entire fortune to the American Red Cross, God bless America. I should be able to do that. And, and, mm-hmm. if I don't, and if I don't want anybody to know I'm giving all my money to the Red Cross, again, God bless America. And if they're doing charitable work, that's terrific. However, what's happening is that they're being hijacked. Nonprofit legal shells are being hijacked, you know, with all types of sort of mysterious names, and they're being used for political purposes to, as a way of getting around contribution limits yep. and getting around disclosure. And so there's a law... Already, there's already a law in the uh, it's federal law that says that that if you have that if your major purpose as a nonprofit um, is not for some charitable religious whatever um, um, purpose um, and it's for political purposes instead, um, you're really not a nonprofit. And the IRS really needs to sort of clarify the rules regarding you know this major purpose test and really draw some clean lines to say that this is what you're going to be allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. And again, bring disclosure and bring some kind of clarity, because otherwise, I think the big thing we're going to see even more so this year than we did in the last election cycle is all these nonprofits, again, being hijacked and making it and making unlimited expenditures to try to influence the election. And we'll have no idea who they are. Well, and that's right. And uh, the Federal Elections Commission, we've talked about many times on this show, they are completely broken at this point. You've got three Republicans, three Democrats. They now uh, deadlock on absolutely everything. And you've got a perfect case, uh, frankly, in this uh, uh, Karl Rove Crossroads GPS case where they clearly, uh, you know, they, they declared themselves to be a social welfare organization, and yet they spent uh, millions of dollars, the majority of their money, on, you know, direct spending on campaigns, which seems to me already to be in clear violation uh, of the statutes. They should have declared themselves a political action committee, and the IRS could do something about it uh, and stop these groups from getting away with it. But you know what, uh, David Schultz, they did that... Uh, that fantastic scam last year where they pretended that right-wing uh, conservative groups were being targeted by the IRS when, in fact, the IRS was simply trying to do their job in, in, in not just uh, uh, conservative groups, but progressive groups as well. Uh, and yet I think that they have scared the hell out of the IRS, that the IRS is also broken and will also be disinclined to take the action that they ought to to stop this scam of using uh, nonprofits uh, as political action committees, I think you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely correct. Unfortunately, um, but it is an option that's out there, and, and we ought. And, and my point in my piece was to say that here are four possibilities. Some of them that the president could do directly. Some of them through different agencies. But when we're looking at 
the gridlock that's in Congress, when we're looking at the reluctance of, of a Congress, and especially, I think, coming from, from Republicans, although I think many Democrats are complicit, there are still options. There are still some things that could be done. Yeah. And certainly none of these, or even all four of them together, um, will be enough to sort of really address what I think is the fundamental problem of money in politics. But it shows that there are some small things that we could do. Um, I want to yep. tell a quick story. After Citizens United um, was decided, um, Senator Al Franken, who's my senator in, in Minnesota, mm-hmm. his legal counsel called me and said, you know, what can we do in the wake of Citizens United? So this is back, what, in 2010. And I actually had suggested uh, a variation of these four ideas to his legal counsel. Um, and, his, and his legal counsel said, these are great ideas. Passed them on to Al Franken. And I remember calling a few weeks later and saying, so what happened? Um, and, and Al Franken had relayed these suggestions to the president, and the president really didn't do anything. And what I'm really hoping um, is that now in these last, what, two years, 18 months of his term, um, he decides that maybe he can do a few different things and that maybe he ought to act um, now um, yep. to sort of create some kind of legacy to change the system. That he can act, he can speak up, and frankly, the presidential candidates that are running, they can speak up, they can call for this, and they can say, hey, if you elect me, I will call on these executive agencies to do these things. David Schultz, i got to get out. We're running late, but uh, fantastic talking to you. Uh, I hope we're going to talk again in the future because it uh, seems to me that we are simpatico on many of these issues, and I'm glad to hear uh, someone with gravitas, an actual professor, saying the same thing that uh, you know, uh, just the lowly bloggers like me have been saying for so many years. David Schultz. Professor of Political Science and Law at Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota, author of Election Law and Democratic Theory and the forthcoming book, Presidential Swing States, Why Ten Only Matter. He blogs about politics at schultzstake.blogspot.com and he tweets at Prof. D. Schultz, where I hope you'll follow him. Uh, David Schultz, great speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. You bet. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report and much more. This is your broadcast. Please stay tuned. world really is melting, it seems, uh, as you will soon find out in our latest Green News report. Uh, Desi Doyen joins us again, once again. Uh, Des, I had hoped to talk to you about this uh, this new memo. Well, it's not a new memo. 1981 memo from Exxon showing that they knew about climate change. They knew about uh, CO2. But you'll be shocked to learn, as usual, I'm running late. (laughs) It's a really big story. We should talk about it tomorrow. Yeah, we will try to. But for now, we've got a lot to cover and catch up on on our latest Green News Report. It's 18.7 billion. It's just a drop in the bucket. While we were out, record settlement in BP's oil disaster in the Gulf. I believe the way to go in coal is to get the technology that can address Uh, the issues rather than to put coal out of business. Former Senator Jim Webb enters the 2016 race. We'll tell you his terrible position on climate change. Extreme heat waves shatter records on four continents. 
Plus, history was made today is the Solar Impulse 2 touchdown at Kalilo Airport. Solar powered plane flies into aviation history. All of that history and more, ironically, in your very near future. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The Supreme Court tossing out the Environmental Protection Agency's first ever rules requiring power plants to cut emissions of mercury and other air pollutants. This was a big victory for a private industry. This is a rare win for the coal industry. It's a victory for business. You seem really giddy about that victory. You know the losing team in that game was lungs you know that right yes yes i do this is your green news report lungs business rules okay desi doyan after well over a dozen candidates getting into this uh 2016 race on both the republican and the democratic side we finally have a full-on all-out denier on the Democratic side entering the race. Yeah. In politics, former Senator Jim Webb of Virginia has now become the fifth candidate to jump into the race for the 2016 Democratic presidential nomination. Now, we've been tracking the climate change positions of all of the official 2016 candidates. And while former Senator Webb doesn't outright deny climate change. Yes, he does. He he really doesn't want to do anything about it. In the Senate, he voted for expanding oil and gas drilling and stopping the Environmental Protection Agency from even regulating emissions. Here he is in 2011. I am not convinced that the Clean Air Act was ever intended to regulate or to classify as a dangerous pollutant something as basic and ubiquitous in our atmosphere as carbon dioxide. So he doesn't want to do anything about carbon dioxide. He's a believer in, quote, clean coal technology. He fought against the Obama administration when they put a moratorium on offshore drilling during the BP oil spill disaster in the Gulf. And as if all of that is not bad enough. I'm a strong believer from uh, the time that I was 18 years old in the advantages of nuclear power. This guy, it's shocking he has a D by his name. Uh, And did I say that his position on climate is terrible? Yes, I believe you did. All right. Speaking of the BP oil disaster in the Gulf, it has been a long five years since that rig exploded and killed 11 workers, then dumped 200 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. Oil giant BP has now agreed to pay $18.7 billion, the largest environmental settlement in the nation's history, to compensate the federal government and five Gulf states for environmental and economic economic damages. But as journalist Antonia Juhas told Nicole Sandler on the broadcast earlier this week, BP is getting off easy. The amount of the settlement doesn't meet BP's legal obligations. It doesn't meet the cost necessary to restore the Gulf, which BP is required to do under the Oil Pollution Act. And it certainly doesn't dissuade other actors from behaving in the same type of grossly negligent behavior, which a federal judge said that BP did. Remember, no prosecutions have occurred of BP executives. And if this settlement is approved by the court, BP gets to spread those payments over 18 years. Oh, it's nice to be a corporation. Meanwhile, extreme persistent heat waves are shattering records across four continents. In the U.S., an extreme heat wave in Washington state broke all-time state temperature records 
records. Weather Underground's Dr. Jeff Masters says what's surprising is not just the number of locations breaking all these records, but by how much the records are being broken, four to five degrees or more over the previous records. In Europe, the UK recorded its hottest July temperature ever, 98 degrees Fahrenheit. Three other nations also broke their all-time national heat records, the Netherlands, Thailand, and Colombia. But Germany beat them all, breaking its all-time record for hottest temperature ever recorded in the entire country on Sunday at 104 degrees. You know what? We need some more clean coal. Am I right, Jim Webb? And finally... In a plane without a drop of fuel. Five days, five nights. A flight that many thought would not be possible. The 100% solar-powered plane, the Solar Impulse 2, landed safely in Hawaii after completing a record-breaking and dangerous non-stop flight across the Pacific Ocean. The five-day, five-night non-stop flight broke two records, longest plane flight powered only by the sun, and the longest non-stop solo flight in world history. It now heads to Phoenix on its historic trip around the world to bring attention to the promise of clean energy. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Love that story. Glad they made it home safe. Uh, thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Yep. Appreciate it. And uh, my thanks also to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to my guest today, Professor David Schultz of Hamline University. And, of course, my thanks as ever to our affiliates and especially to you, the listener. We will join you again tomorrow for another thrilling episode. I hope you will join us. Until then, if you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can always download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review. Drop us some email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And as well, you should and uh, you must follow me at the Twitters and the Facebooks, where I am the Bradblog. Until we meet again, you can, of course, find me at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.